to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Some brands are just constants in the sponsorship landscape. Sure, they may move properties from time to time, but they are always part of the experience somewhere. I don't know about you, but I often wonder how these brands consistently figure out ways to stay relevant and engage with audiences and yet not distract from those experiences that those audiences are actually there to experience. How do they keep coming up with new ideas and not go stale? Because they still have to work as part of the brand's overall marketing because those brand's objectives and goals don't generally experience big shifts in small amounts of time. Plus, how does sponsorship remain an important element of that overall marketing when the brands are already household names? We're unlikely to forget who they are. Further, while the highly visible assets are obvious, the naming rights, the signage, the uniform branding, what other assets are they utilizing to help achieve their goals? What do they find most valuable? To help answer all those questions, Alison Tyson, Senior Manager, Brand and Sponsorship at Nissan, joins us on the show and provides some really interesting and insightful views into how Nissan approaches and executes their sponsorships. I'm Daniel Oyston and welcome to Episode 74 of Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for joining us for another episode. We really do love that we have so many people all over the world in lots of different organizations on both sides of the fence who listen to the show. Your feedback is amazing and really puts a smile on our faces when we hear from you. When we do hear from you, I can give you a shout out on the show, like right here, this is where I'd say, and such and such got in contact, etc., etc. But no, no shout outs this episode. None of you shot me a message and that makes me super sad because I know getting a shout out is really, really cool. So go on, reach out, say hi, let me know what you're up to, where you work, and I'll be sure to include you with a shout out in the next show. As usual, we also look at one of Core's latest blogs. So also joining us on the show is Core Software's commercial manager, Australasia, Daniel Ferguson-Hill, who asks, is sponsorship worth it if we don't need the branding play? Here's Daniel. Daniel, welcome to the show again. Oh, as a seasoned marketer, you got me all excited with the first sentence of your latest blog, which said, Sponsorship as part of a broader marketing strategy is becoming increasingly more effective as a method of reaching specific targeted audiences than ever before. The little hairs on my arms started to to stand up because a lot of us, the marketers, we've been spruiking that for a long time and good sponsorship professionals have been spruiking it for a long time as well. But why do you think that some in the industry still need reminding about it? <laughs> Well, as a function, sponsorship provides marketers with an opportunity to identify challenges or growth areas and then re-engineer solutions to meet certain objectives. It can be treated as a great media buy, an opportunity for engagement, or even a tool to just to enhance association. But regardless of the objective, sponsorship provides brands with an amazing platform for exposure and awareness. And look, in doing so, we, as an industry, have access to a ridiculous amount of assets that can be used across almost every facet of marketing. I'm talking influencers, PR, naming rights, digital, social, TV, activations, audio. You get the picture. As the number of assets we use continue to grow, you know, so too does the global sponsorship spend. I think with steady increases year on year in recent times, I think I saw the other day, 2019 is predicted to go above $70 billion. Wow. That, that is a ridiculous amount of money. But when we look at who's typically spending the bigger portions of that figure, it's our usual culprits. And, you know, 
in no particular order. You're looking at um, Pepsi, AB InBev, Coca-Cola, Nike, Toyota. There's such a long list. But the world, I mean, we already know who they are. We already buy their products. They're well established in our culture a lot of the times. We see and engage with them pretty much everywhere we go, online, offline, in the shops. So why do they need to keep spending on sponsorship? Is sponsorship worth it if they don't actually need it for the the branding play? Short answer is absolutely. And and just looking at that list, I think I've bought a product from each of those brands <laughs> in the last month. But the reason we know so much about our usual culprits is for those exact reasons. They spend countless amounts of time, resources, and money so that consumers can interact and build relationships with them. There are plenty of ways we can explain why sponsorship is important to brands who, who don't necessarily need to be seen as such. But I want to focus on three key areas for this and being engagement, scale, and storytelling. Okay, cool. So let's unpack that first one out of engagement scale and storytelling. Let's start with engagement. Yep. So as well as on-site activations, public relations, hospitality, digital and social media, they're all becoming really popular vehicles for engagement-based spending and sponsorship. Each require really active participation from the end consumer for the asset to actually be successful, but they also allow a brand to extend its reach positively impact consumers' brand affinity and and overall effectiveness of a campaign. On face value, these assets don't really fall into the typical branding basket. However, not only do they play a role towards enhancing an overall experience, they also allow a brand to really drive home its its business to consumer effectiveness. And given that sponsor recall is affected by duration of exposure, engagement via the sponsorship assets mentioned previously allows a brand to just extend this duration to a specific audience throughout a season or a term. Now, that all makes complete sense. Let's shift gears to the second one, scale. So one thing that sponsorship have has over its traditional marketing asset rivals is its ability to scale a branded message. Whether they're big spenders or just dabbling their feet in, the level of brand association and, and impact or impacts on consideration that sponsorship can achieve for a brand are really unrivaled. Social and digital media fast become prominent assets to scale a message. Influencers, viral content, and the continued use of hashtags allow brands to break the ceiling in terms of exposure. And and look, the, the beauty of scale is that it can be controlled and uncontrolled. Controlled scale allows brands to target audiences via geography or perhaps an age range using data to segment where and who their messages go to. Uncontrolled, on the other hand, is just letting some content go viral and watching it fly. If anyone remembers the Fiji Fiji water girl at the Oscars, I mean, that literally went everywhere. Speaking to controlled scale, brands are also able to access this data from their own books or perhaps even their rights holders. Pulling in multiple data sources like social versus digital versus geography can specifically look at who and where they want to target at a specific time rather than just placing blanket advertising. Targeting and retargeting have become amazing tools for brands and agencies to continue speaking directly to their audience without wasting efforts or resources in other areas. I think that's a very good point around not wasting effort or resources in even not just other areas but just on what you might be focusing on targeting and retargeting now because for so long, apart from maybe recent years, really strong targeting, particularly digitally, we just didn't have the ability to do it. So there was a large amount of money spent on marketing and I would assume also sponsorship in the in years
has gone past, which were just, we think this will work, but we don't really know how to get it in front of the right people. But we, if we get it in front of enough people, a lot of them will be the right people. But now there really just is no excuse for not targeting or retargeting very, very strongly and making the most of the, the financial resources that you have. So, okay, we focused on engagement and scale. That leaves something we often talk about on the show and when we're talking to clients, and that is the power of stories. Yeah, and we probably sound a little bit like a broken record on the podcast around storytelling. But, you know, if you can remember the cheesy line, people don't buy products, they buy brands. (laughs) It's actually a thing. A myriad of new OTT broadcasters, the rise in popularity of influencers, and a multitude of ways information can now be shared are all impacting the way we interpret a brand's message. You know, income stories. Storytelling allows a brand to bypass other typical advertising methods or or traditional advertising methods to create a genuine connection with the consumer. Because of its huge array of asset types, sponsorship has become an increasingly effective medium to tell a branded story. You know, think about our usual culprits again. The reason we continue to engage and purchase from these brands is because of the way that they create an emotional connection with us. You know, something that is simply much deeper than a TV print ad on page six of the local newspaper. For brands who spend in sponsorship, storytelling allows them to create an authentic, ongoing narrative about their products. You know, and, and marketers will appreciate that there's a really beautiful subtleness to it. The reason branded stories are so successful in sponsorship is, again, because of the emotional connection it helps brands create with consumers. Emotional interaction is vital in moving an audience's relationship with the sponsor from being observational to transactional. I think if you need that point driven home further listeners with people don't buy products, they buy brands, you are most likely holding in your hand either a phone that is iOS or a phone that is Android and people are very, very passionate about the brands and how they feel and not necessarily the specifics of and and the specifications of what the actual phone can do. So that's something that everybody can absolutely relate to. But successful sponsorship doesn't just have to be about branding though, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and you're right. There's literally stacks of assets that can be just as useful, if not more effective. Feeding the right message to the right audience in the right way will always guarantee results. And sponsorship is an incredible avenue to, to follow that pathway. Very good point. Thanks for the chat, Daniel. And listeners, if you'd like to read through Daniel's thoughts in detail, just head along to the resources section at coresoftware.com. Thanks for joining us, mate. Thanks very much. Love that chat with Daniel, and it's very topical and a great segue into our chat with Alison Tyson, Senior Manager, Brand and Sponsorship at Nissan, who takes us inside Nissan's sponsorship program and provides some really interesting and insightful views into how Nissan approaches and executes their sponsorships. Globally, Nissan partners with the UEFA Champions League, ICC Cricket World Cup, City Football Group, Expo 2020, and was a partner of the Rio 2016 Olympic and Paralympic Games. In Alison's home country, Australia, among others, Nissan partners with Melbourne City Football Club, part of the City Football Group, and also Netball Australia, including the Suncorp Super Netball Competition, which also includes a number of official Nissan Netball Ambassadors. Recently, just this year, Nissan began a three-year partnership with the Hawthorne Australian Rules Football Club. Here's Alison. Alison, welcome to the show. We always start with some icebreaker questions just to get the show going, have a little bit of fun while we get to know you. Nissan is obviously a car manufacturer, so what was your first car? 
Look, I, I mean, I'd love to be able to say it was a Nissan, but truthfully, my first car was a Holden Verena and and Jaded, I think it was cool. It was the early 2000s and um, I'm not sure if you remember, but there was a model with the lights up the side of the back window and my best friend had black and I had white and gosh, we were, we were untouchable cruising the streets of the eastern suburbs of Melbourne in our hatchbacks. <laughs> That's a great answer. I love it. So another icebreaker, this one to get the creative juices flowing for the rest of the show, let's say you are in complete control of the marketing spend and you can do whatever you want. You are the boss. There's no one to answer to or get permission from. What are you doing in Nissan's next campaign? Well, firstly, I think it'd be to make every marketer's dream a reality, and that would be one of an endless budget, of course. But seriously, I'd probably do more of of what we're doing, but on a broader scale, I think, in an effort to reach more people. So with all the money in the world, of course, I'd um, I'd broaden our sponsorship portfolio perhaps into new sectors where we could talk to new audiences like the arts or culture. Uh, I'd increase our portfolio of influencers and solidify that strategy there with an increased reach. But Gosh, there's so much, isn't there? I think I'd probably just concentrate on ideas and concepts that helped us further build our brand and connect with more customers outside of the traditional sales sphere. Excellent. So let's jump into some of the serious stuff. And let's start with something that I think a lot of people wonder, not just people in the industry, but lay people as well. For big brands who don't necessarily need to raise awareness or increase traditional exposure, what's the attraction with sponsorship? It's a great question and I think the reason or the answer for us at Nissan is simple and it's it's about consideration. So for us, I mean, partnering with sporting organisations in particular gives us the authentic opportunity to be present where our target audience choose to be with organisations they choose to engage with. And look, yes, most Australians know Nissan, yet we're not on enough people's shopping lists. And we see the primary role of sponsorship for Nissan playing here and that's the consideration phase of the customer journey to buy buying a new vehicle. And look, as you said, we don't necessarily need to raise awareness, although we do place importance on our awareness assets via our partnerships. And we have quite a rigorous global process in place to ensure prior to signing any new partnership or sponsorship, we have a really healthy return on investment. I know us here at Core are always spruiking that sponsorship is really part of a brand's overall marketing. How do you see it and execute on it? Is sponsorship something that sort of happens by itself in maybe isolation somewhat, obviously while still being strongly aligned to the brand and importantly the brand's marketing objectives? Or is it something you work really, really hard on to integrate across all all your marketing so it is seamless like some other tactics you use like social media and email. At Nissan, we certainly see sponsorship as a channel in our in our overall mix, and we do work really hard to integrate it across all of our marketing. Um, for example, when we launch a new model line TVC, we ensure it's fully backed by an integrated campaign, with sponsorship playing just as important a role as, as any other channel in that integrated campaign. And we want to land consistency in our communications and segment our audiences really carefully to ensure we understand which partnerships can come in and out of our model line strategies. And I mean, for example, you're pretty unlikely to ever see Navara, which is our LCV or our Ute product, integrated into our netball partnership as the audience just doesn't best align for us. Speaking of netball, we see Nissan solidifying a very strong position in women's sport. Is that 
Is that a strategic move generated from within Nissan or was it more reactive and just kind of evolved naturally due to some really good proposals being pitched to you? I'd say we have strategically focused on diversity in sport rather than articulate our position as strong in women's sport alone. Um, yes, we are the official automotive partner of the biggest female sport in this country in, in netball, but we also partner with one of the largest AFL teams nationally as well as being a global partner of the International Cricket Council, which clearly celebrates both men and women athletes alike. How would you describe the attention from a strategic perspective that sponsorship of women's sports gets at the moment? And do you think brands are as focused the same way on the outcomes of sponsoring women's sport versus the way that they've looked at men's sport traditionally? At a fundamental level, it's appropriate. When we look at the trend in women's sport in this country across broadcast, at-match attendance and at a grassroots level, it's growing exponentially. I mean, of course, one of our major partnerships in Netball Australia is leading the way as the number one in women's sport across all three of those areas I just mentioned. But with the introduction and investment behind codes such as the AFLW and the WBBL, the industry of women's sport as a whole is, is certainly swiftly evolving. And, of course, success on a global scale assists that too, doesn't it? I mean, the recent Matilda's performance as well as the Diamonds' dominance at the World Cup, and we just won't talk too much about the final. I think that's still a little raw. Um, Hello to our but- New Zealand listeners. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, We still have a way to go in achieving parity in women's sport too. And I think our industry, and when I say our industry, I mean marketing, advertising and sponsorship, we have an integral role to play there. And if the athletes can continue the momentum on the field, I think more and more brands will certainly consider the investment to grow women's sport off the field. And I think in in addition to that, there's the connection to men's sport too. And we see many examples now of traditional sponsorships of men's sporting teams now including or extending to their women's side also. I mean, this is certainly how our sponsorship of Hawthorne Football Club is set up. We are the official automotive partner of Hawthorne in the VFLW competition too. And we we see the same with Holden as a major partner of Collingwood Football Club extending into the Collingwood Magpies in the Suncorp Super Netball competition. So, I mean, in answer to your question, a brand's focused the same way on outcomes of sponsoring women's sport versus the way they've looked at men's. And all I can answer for is that Nissan, absolutely we are. Any partnership that we engage in um, needs to make commercial sense. And I think, uh, again, I think we'll only see that grow. I couldn't agree with you more. On-site activations, PR, social media, they are all fast becoming the most popular vehicles for engagement-based spending in sponsorship and really work well in driving home a brand's business-to-consumer effectiveness. How does Nissan evaluate its sponsorship assets when thinking about how to engage with either new or maybe existing customers? We evaluate those assets in many different ways and iterate our strategies according to results that we're seeing and we progress week to week. From an on-site activation perspective, we will always have beacons fitted at our activation zones that measure not only impressions or eyeballs, but engagement levels and dwell times and hotspots within our zones, etc. PR was another one you mentioned and um, we measure that, of course, by earned media that we receive, which is closely monitored on an automatic basis 
service as well as any coverage we might receive when we push out media releases. So whether that be to announce a new partnership or stories on our ambassadors or our leverage programs. And I think the last one you said was social media. And I mean, one of the reasons we all love that is because it's so measurable, right? I mean, we can evaluate not only the assets on social platforms provided by rights holders contractually, but we can constantly iterate and pivot our own content on our own channels based on engagement levels. Well, speaking of channels in the industry, we're seeing big brands apply an omni-channel approach to executing their sponsorship. Do you think this works for both big and small brands? And I'm interested if you think each channel should have roughly the same message, or do you think it's better to have something more targeted to each platform? I think more and more we'll see brands applying an omni-channel approach in executing their sponsorship specifically. And actually, I do think it can work for big and small brands alike when scaled correctly. And I think that's really important. And whilst I believe there's a balance that must be achieved between consistency of message and adapting for platforms, in a time where consumers actually expect personalization when interacting with any brand, we need to be cognizant of that and, and tailor our message accordingly. Stepping away from the traditional branding assets, are there any assets that rights holders are offering that you think really, really work or they're sort of in vogue at the moment to help get your message across? I wouldn't say necessarily that rights holders offer per se, but at Nissan, we're certainly very focused on our leverage plans and ensuring we have clear objectives set so we can accurately measure each element of, of all of our partnerships. Um, my team would probably get sick of me saying, as I often say, we can go out and purchase all the sponsorship licenses in the world, but if we aren't willing to invest in effectively leveraging the partnerships, we just won't achieve the ROI that we need and certainly desire. I think an example of an asset as part of our leverage program that has worked really well for us in 2019 is what we call our Nissan Intelligent Playground. It's our brand experience activation at the MCG at all Hawthorne home games. And it showcases two of our top of the range fully accessorized vehicles. So our small to medium SUV, the Qashqai, and our LCV, the Navara. As well as um, we have a Nissan Intelligent Mobility showroom there that explains the Nissan ethos, if you like, on technology in a really fun and engaging way. And then, of course, there's the fun stuff at any activation zone that encourages dwell time. So a colouring wall, a giant ball pit, a Nissan specky wall and Hawthorne player appearances pre-game. And our specky wall is, is linked to a social media competition with weekly winners, which is designed to increase repeat attendance. And having our vehicles on site answers our sort of driving consideration objective that I spoke about up front. Because we know, um, you know, attendees are invited to touch and feel and experience the interior and exterior of our cars. And we know that when they have that experience, it's, it increases consideration. In saying that, we've been really well supported by the Hawks in support of our playground by way of social amplification to drive traffic to our site on game day, as well as our playground serving as a collection point of Hawthorne's exclusive match day posters. And this is an initiative new for them in 2019 designed to drive match attendance. And we hand them out from the back of our Navara, again, driving people to experience our vehicles. You spoke about the Specky wall there. For our international listeners, a, a Specky is a spectacular catch that might be taken, or as we call in Aussie rules, uh, a mark. That Specky wall, you offer weekly prizes. What sort of prizes are we talking about? Because I'm guessing it's not a car every week. 
Not, oh, wouldn't we love to give away a car every week? Maybe I could have put that in my um, endless budget response as well. And thank you for explaining what Specky stands for. Um, you did that much more eloquently than I would have. But yes, we do give away prizes every week. And I'm glad you asked, actually, because at the beginning of the season, we were giving away reserved seats to the next game. So if we were in round five, we'd give away, away um, seats to round six. And we actually weren't seeing a really high level of engagement or interaction with our social channels based on that and when um, the team and I got together we kind of thought about why that might have been and and really the summation was that a lot of the people visiting our playground week in week out were actually already Hawthorne members or people that didn't value a ticket to the next game as as something that they would like to receive so we worked really closely with Hawthorne and we we sort of pivoted that mid-season and changed it to those more money can't buy experiences but at a sort of a lesser scale just due to the regularity that we had to offer the prize. And so we ended up utilising signed merchandise week in, week out, whether that be a Guernsey signed by a few members of the team or we've had official game balls that have been signed by Alastair Clarkson, the coach, and also the captain of the match from season 2018. And and more recently, we've been giving away some Cyril Rioli merchandise. And we've seen the engagement levels across Facebook and Instagram grow quite exponentially. So I think a good example example of of not being complacent with your sponsorships and not having a sort of set and forget mentality at the beginning of a sporting season and and having the ability to be agile throughout the season and and pivot when required. So you realised that those tickets weren't working and in hindsight it's probably pretty obvious isn't it I might have made the same sort of misstep in terms of you're trying to engage passionate fans who are going to the games every week anyway and a lot of them are members so they get tickets every week you realize that's not really working you need to come up with some other ideas you approach Hawthorne how did they work through that did they come to the table with ideas did you did you sit around with butcher's paper how does that process work one of the most important things when setting out with any partnership is the relationship you build with the people on the rights holder side. And I mean, you, you're always going to be one of many partners and you want to, you want to ensure that you, you build that strong relationship for the, from the beginning so that when you do have a situation as we did, where we sort of went, you know what, we can't use things that have been contractually provided to us for this use. They were brilliant. And and I must say, um, Hawthorne are absolutely fantastic to work with from that perspective. They're always willing to go that extra step for something then that we may need. And yeah, we just sat down with the commercial team there and the partnerships team there and said, hey, this isn't working. We've got some ideas on what what we think passionate and avid fans and supporters might might respond to and might like. But, you know, they, they have such a an intricate knowledge of, of their database of over 80,000 people that, you know, we, it was kind of a, a collaborative session back and forth. I, I don't recall Butcher's paper, but don't quote me. But just, you know, we kind of both just threw it up, threw up different ideas. Um, we spoke a lot to the, the wider marketing team at Nissan and, and they spoke to their footy department and we came up with a few different items to give away and, and we're sort of closely measuring that throughout the season. So we're just constantly learning for next year to go, you know, we might start with the match day balls and then we might move into Guernsey's or we might just do the match day balls the whole year. We'll, we'll, um, there's still a couple of home games to go. So we'll wait to do that analysis. But in answer to your question, it was really a collaborative session. I think you made some good points in that answer and I think it might have been the answer 
previously around that, not just setting and forgetting your sponsorships and then also making sure you've got good relationships because when you realize something maybe isn't working out how you hoped, you can go to the rights holder and start to work through that. And if you've got good relationships, they're going to come to the table with some solutions as well. Now, typically when we see bigger brands activating their sponsorship, there's a lot going on. It can be really busy at a consumer level. We're seeing lots of branding, lots of engagement opportunities, and even more call to action messages everywhere. But from a marketer's perspective, we're actually capturing data at each touch point. You spoke about the beacons earlier, and we use that sort of information to target and retarget specific audiences. Is the hype around targeting and retargeting real? And if it is real, what do you find challenging about it? It's absolutely real. And I think um, one of our key challenges, as I'm sure for many brands, it's doing it in an authentic way. And when you think about it, a car company doesn't have an organic or natural alignment to sport. So we need to ensure we create that sense of authenticity. And at Nissan, we, we choose to do this via our strategic positioning with each of our partnerships. So that's really our reason for being there and an answer to the question, is this sport or club or organisation better for Nissan being there. And once we're comfortable, we've established authenticity, which we believe we have in each of our partnerships currently. We can set to ensure we correctly target or retarget our audiences. We have a strategy behind our communications here based on whether or not we're capturing data in an offline or online environment and whether or not we're talking to prospective or current Nissan owners or drivers. And look, capturing data is just yet another hard metric we can report on throughout our partnerships life cycles and, and certainly help us inform future decisions. And, and just to touch on the initial part of your question around more call to action everywhere and just the general clutter surrounding messaging. At Nissan, we've certainly focused on and worked really hard to ensure we have an overarching message in market for each individual partnership, but one that aligns to a creative look and feel for our partnerships holistically. So we really aim to simplify our message so consumers and audiences of our partnerships can understand why we're there and the role that we're there to play. And what do you find challenging about all that data? Is it maybe not knowing what you might need? Is it too much data? And Is it making sense of the data? What do you find really challenging about that space? I think what brands need to be so cognizant of is understanding the objective behind the data they're capturing. So why we're capturing data at an on-site activation, for example, versus why we might capture it as part of our social media campaigns or our digital advertising is so important. Because, I mean, as you say, there's, da there's data everywhere, right? And, and not only understanding why you're capturing it, but what, importantly, what you're going to do with it once you've captured it. So there's no use in, you know, interacting with someone at one of our activations um, at a sporting match and then, you know, really not touching that data and not doing anything with it until six months later when we might have a cracking retail offer in market and we push it out to that audience. I mean, that's just not creating a genuine connection and not utilising the data in the best possible way. We need to we need to understand the data, ensure we're capturing it in the right way and then ensure we're treating that person in an appropriate way based on our level of engagement too. So, Alison, marketers... When we're presented with the opportunity to, to capture 
data, some marketers, and I've been guilty of it myself in the past, we try and capture as much as possible. We kind of get scared that maybe we're not going to engage with that potential consumer or, or existing consumer again for a while. And particularly with forms where we're trying to capture data, we think, well, list everything, like what's your birth date and what's your address and what's your phone number and all these things that I think sometimes we just put out there in front of the consumer when we're trying to capture data because, like I said, we're scared we might not get this opportunity. Apart from just trying to figure out what data can align to what you're trying to achieve, where do you draw the line with that sort of stuff? It's a really important question and um, certainly you see and hear a lot of interesting debate um, around data, particularly at the moment and and not to mention um, privacy. But for us, it's it's probably two streams and, and one's engagement or, or the acquisition stream and the other is loyalty and retention. And I think certainly at Nissan, we're um, of recent times placing a lot more importance in understanding more and more about our customers in that retention space. And I think, I think when you've already got customers Customers, you can you can afford to delve a little deeper as they are already engaged in you and your brand, and I think that's where you can have a little bit more fun or understand a little bit more in that deeper level of customers, as you say, trying to capture absolutely everything about them. But I think in the acquisition space is where you've got to be really careful because, as I said right up front, we we align ourselves with organisations where our target audience choose to be. So we've got to be really careful in towing that line and making sure we're still enhancing their experience there or enhancing the experience they're having with that organisation or sporting team or, or um, league. But, we, but we're being very careful not to be too pushy and, um, and therefore creating that more of a negative experience with us as a brand whilst they're kind of on that cusp of deciding whether or not to engage with us. So in answer to the question, I think you've got to first really clearly understand what stream that customer is in, whether or not you're looking at them for acquisition or whether or not they're a current customer and therefore you, you sort of deploy a, a retention strategy. One thing that sponsorship has over its more traditional marketing tactic rivals is its ability to scale a branded message. And you touched on scale earlier on in the show. Can you think of any good examples where you've seen this lately, whether that's with Nissan or maybe with another brand? Look, yes, I agree. Sponsorship has a brilliant ability to be able to scale a branded message. And we often see this work incredibly well when initiatives are tied to community or grassroots engagement. I think in Australia, we're so incredibly lucky uh, where we have the luxury of living in a country where thousands of communities are gathering for different reasons every single day. And if brands successfully tap into that via sponsorship, they can certainly reap the rewards. Um, there are some big brands doing this really well. And actually, when I think about examples um, to talk about here, they're all in the financial sector. So first, I think Commonwealth Bank and their involvement in grassroots cricket or NAB with the Auskick program. And I mean, I don't think you could drive past a football or cricket ground in suburban or regional Australia without seeing a Bendigo Bank sign. But this strategy lends itself really strongly to scalability and with access to so many communities. When you're driving an authentic and genuine agenda, when you need to lean on those communities for either strength of message or building brand love or even positive PR, you're able to do that in a really strong and powerful way. 
A lot of big brands will have a stack of hospitality or ticketing thrown into a sponsorship deal, and often they get promoted as, oh, you know, these are really great staff rewards or good for client entertainment, or you can give them away. How would you describe the perceived value versus the actual value of hospitality and ticketing assets that you might receive in a sponsorship? Perceived value for me trumps actual value every day of the week and and there are a couple of reasons why. I mean, let's take standard ticketing reserve seating, for example. Not a high actual value, yet when used for reward and recognition internally where people can go with their teams or their families and have a great experience, the way that employee then not only feels towards the partnership but often how they develop into a brand ambassador for you internally and for the partnership. I mean, the result there well outweighs the cost. And then take corporate hospitality opportunities. And this is often within an area where people haven't experienced before and has that exclusive feel. This is where at Nissan, we really look to engage our dealer network, our fleet customers and our business partners to ensure they experience such an integral part to our business. And then we have money can't buy experiences like tossing the coin in front of a packed house at the MCG on a Friday night or delivering the ball to the centre player of a of Sunshine Coast Lightning at a netball grand final or even experiencing the UEFA Champions League final in Europe. I mean, these are all opportunities that through our partnerships we offer to Nissan customers to ensure we're not only engaging but surprising and delighting them throughout their life cycle rather than just when it's time to repurchase a vehicle. Sounds amazing. I'm picking the UA for one. Storytelling <laughs> allows a brand to bypass other typical advertising methods to create, and you spoke about it before, particularly with community-based sports sponsorships, to create a genuine connection and emotional engagement with a consumer. Can you think of any examples where you as a consumer thought, geez, that was good, we could use that at Nissan? I wouldn't say about this example I'm about to talk about that I thought we could use that at Nissan, but this example is I'll talk through is one of not only relatability, but a great example of forging an emotional connection with consumers via storytelling, which with what is, um, you know, a commoditized product. So take the recent uh, McDonald's McCafe brand TVC, and I'll give a little bit of context for those that may not instantly remember. It's a story of a father driving around in his car in the middle of the night with his sleeping baby in the back. And for parents, certainly, we're instantly transported back to that time. And at this time where we would do and try anything to get our babies to sleep. And for many, that just meant countless drives around the block at any time of the day or night. And I think where they were particularly clever there was taking a truth such as sleeplessness in the early newborn phase and connecting that with the 24-hour drive-through selling barista-made coffee was a strategically sound way of not only advertising a functional proof point of their business, but by doing it through the art of storytelling, ensuring that genuine emotional connection was created. Now, I realise that's an example of an above-the-line TV campaign, but I think the story is easily continued through to the supporting channels of the marketing mix, such as media partnerships, sponsorship activations, and even bespoke experiential activities that we're seeing more and more of lately. You spoke about the art of storytelling in that example. If brands 
are telling stories through sponsorship, how often do you think they need to revisit the story they're trying to tell in terms of checking if it is still relevant or even just still working and and resonating with the target audience? Well, I mean, we're all constantly iterating, aren't we? I think so. I think in that vein, we're constantly revisiting, we're tweaking, we're talking to consumers now, whether that be via industry reporting that we might commission or rights holders surveys, and, and we're adapting. And that's all to ensure messages we are communicating as a brand are relevant to the audience we're talking to. And at Nissan, uh, we're forever conscious of our life cycle with our major partnerships too. So what we look like as a brand in year one at Hawthorne Football Club versus the story we're trying to tell um, in year three with Netball Australia will always paint a different picture or indeed tell a different story. Alison, if people want to get in contact with you, find out more about Nissan's sponsorship activities, what can they do? I'm on LinkedIn and I'd, I'd absolutely love to hear from, from your listeners and talk more. I could talk all day about sponsorship specifically um, and certainly what we're doing at Nissan. So, yeah, reach out on LinkedIn. And we will put a link in the show notes at coresoftware.com. Alison Tyson, Senior Manager, Brand and Sponsorship, thank you so much for taking us inside Nissan Motor Corporation's sponsorships. You're more than welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Loved some of the the really nitty-gritty insights that Alison shared with us, especially those around working with Hawthorne, where they realised what they had in place really wasn't working that well. So great to hear about those open discussions and taking responsibility and both parties working together to ensure the partnership is beneficial for all and, just as importantly, relevant to the target audience. Much better than letting things run and getting to renewal time and hearing that dreaded, we just don't feel like this is working for us anymore statement. That's a wrap for episode 74. Please don't let me be all sad about not hearing from you and being able to give you a shout out in the next episode. We really do love hearing from you, so help me out. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Loyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponserve. And if you want to connect with Core Software's commercial manager, Australasia, Daniel Ferguson Hill, you can catch him on daniel.ferguson at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Sponsurve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, eBooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.